0: working our way through the book of Kings, and we are now in chapter 6. We will begin by just reading verses 1 through 10. God's word says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of Of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was sixty cubits long, twenty cubits wide, and thirty cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was twenty cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and ten cubits deep in the front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, and the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third one was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beam should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and when one went up by the stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. On July 7, 1930, work began on what has been called one of the seven engineering marvels of the world. For the next five years, over 21,000 workers would work so quickly that they finished the project two years ahead of schedule. The work began in 1930. Arthur Powell Davis had drafted the plans 28 years earlier, and before his presidency, Herbert Hoover was crucial in moving the plans forward. Then when he was president, Hoover made sure the project began. Of course, we're talking about the Hoover Dam. The project was an engineering marvel because its size created massive problems. If the concrete that they poured was cured in natural methods, it would take 125 years to cool off. And so they ran 600 miles of steel pipe throughout the concrete, which they then ran river water through, and also every day they made a 1,000-pound block of ice, and they melted it and would run it through these pipes to help cure the concrete. When the concrete had all been poured and they had sufficiently run water, they then shoved with pressure guns concrete into these 600 miles of pipe to reinforce the dam. Well, if they had poured one huge slab of concrete, it would have eventually caused cracks and fissures would have then broke, and the whole dam would have fallen apart. So instead, they used interlocking blocks to avoid this. Without Semco to help them, they had to have two construction, uh, concrete batch plants made there. And they would every day have concrete made off-site, shipped in by railroad, and then lowered down to the pour. At peak production, they were pouring a railroad truck of cement every 78 seconds. If you took all the concrete and made an 8-inch thick road 16 feet feet across, it would go all the way from San Francisco to New York City, or, another direction, from Seattle to Miami. If the heat produced from curing the concrete had been concentrated in one oven, you could have baked in it 500,000 loaves of bread for three years. This dam is now 80 years old and is still producing electricity for over a million people every single year and we marvel at these engineering feats and go wow it's amazing you go and look at it and go how did they do this all the way back then when we think they were so dumb and yet they build this amazing thing how do they do it and yet though we find it fascinating many of us don't draw spiritual lessons to be learned from construction plans they seem fascinating but maybe not much to do with our life and yet i come to you this morning with the proposition that God wants you to grow to learn more about him from the construction plans in 1 Kings chapter 6. Now that may seem an odd proposition, but what we're told in these verses is not just how it was built and how big it was and what materials were being used. We are told that but we're ultimately being given pictures of who God is and how he relates to people. The construction is reminding us about God's faithfulness to his promises, to make a permanent place, to give permanent rest to his people. It's telling of a place where holy people can dwell and be in the presence of God. If you have a bulletin, on the last page should be an outline. And there you'll see these three kind of themes as you go throughout this chapter. In the first ten verses that we read, the author focuses on the exterior of the building, and he's going to focus in on God's promised rest. Then in verses 11 through 13, he talks about the foundation, the need for holiness. And then he'll wrap up in verses 14 through the end, mainly talking about the interior and that it gives us access into God's presence. But it begins here in chapter 6 with an interesting note. It says in the 400. 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, they began to build. Why in the world does this get mentioned? Well, to understand it, we actually have to understand another time this was done. We're not going to turn there, but you could turn to Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, it says this, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was four hundred. 30 years at the end of 430 years on that very day all the hosts of the lord went out from the land of egypt and exodus 12 and first Kings 6 were not just giving us dates so we can do chronology though they were doing that and i'm not denying that but what they were ultimately doing is pointing back to god's promises because exodus 12 is rooted in god's promise in genesis 15 to abraham that his children his descendants would Dwell in a foreign foreign land for over 400 years. And so as they left in Exodus 12, the verse telling of their time in the land was a reminder of God's promise. And so now in 1 Kings 6, similarly, they're being reminded of a promise. I think we could find that promise in Exodus 3 when God appears to Moses at the burning bush and he says to Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And God has kept that promise. As we saw last week in 1 Kings 5, God has given them rest on every side. Thus, just like in Exodus 12, when God kept his promise for 400 years, now here in 1 Kings 6, God has showed he's kept his promise for 480 years. They now have rest now you might be thinking well they've been in the land a long time they've already been there except it might be similar to a military couple imagine a military couple has lived they've gone all around the globe serving and they retire and they've lived in their retirement home for three years and one day the husband's sitting there and the wife comes in and says we're done packing and he goes well, what are you talking about we, we've been here three years what do you mean we're done packing She goes, I just took the last box, and I finally got it set up. Everything is gone. No more boxes again. Well, on one level, they finished packing three years ago, but on one level, it is now permanent. Every single box is gone. Well, by Israel now building a temple, a permanent dwelling place for God, not a tabernacle that can be picked up and moved, it's symbolizing we are permanently here. God has given you his promised rest, so promised that you can build a stable permanent house and so God is showing the great redemption I gave you in Egypt something similar is happening now I am going to come and dwell with you permanently and yet God's timetable rather surprises us when we reflect upon it if we went back 400 years we're talking about the time of the Jamestown settlement Plymouth Rock if we went back 480 years we'd be in the time of the protestant reformation and yet though it has been 480 years god never forgets his promises sometimes we have to keep reminding people of their promises because they want you to forget them so we keep saying hey you remember you promised you were going to do this and we keep reminding them over and over sometimes we hope that others will forget our promises because we actually don't want to fulfill anymore but God never forgets. God never hopes that, uh, I hope they don't remember that one. God always keeps his word. And yet this passage is reminding us that though God keeps his word, it's not always on our timetable. We get anxious. We want answers to our problems yesterday. Not today. We wish we already had the answers. And yet God works in years and decades in centuries in millennia an oft quoted verse by Christians a very dear verse is God's promise in Jeremiah 29:11 it says for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope and that is a great promise god gives us and yet if you go back one verse Jeremiah 29:10 it begins this way. When 70 years have come, I will visit you, and I will fulfill my promise to you. God works in decades. For those of us concerned about our health, we want our pain to go away this week, and yet God may have that pain for decades. For those of us concerned about our finances, we may want to be stable this year, and yet God may have that for you for years for those of us concerned about politics we may want change leadership in the next election cycle and he may have great promises 70 years from now in 2090 and he's answering our maybe our prayers today but not on our timetable and so god calls us to trust him but we have to realize a life of faith needs to lift up its eyes from the immediate circumstances in front of us and see that god is plans far longer, far bigger than we can see and imagine. So don't demand that God give his answers on your timetable. Trust him in his timetable for, his, for your life. His timing is always best. Well, following this important reminder of God's faithfulness in verse 1, to give them this promised land, to give them the promised rest in the land, the author begins to give a tour of the exterior of the house, and he says it's 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Now, I'm sure almost all your Bibles have a little footnote that says a cubit is one and a half feet. So to convert this, and I'll just say everything else this morning if I give dimensions and feet, that would mean this building was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 40 feet, 45 feet high. Now, if you were of the type who would go out and measure the church building, you might find it's 155 feet long, 55 sorry, 50 feet wide, and about 30 feet tall. People wouldn't go on the roof on a windy day to figure such things out. So they'd estimate, after a couple measurements, 30 feet. So nonetheless, the point is, this building is longer and wider than the temple. It is not as tall, though. And so this temple that is being described for us, though a beautiful building, though intricately designed, was not a massive in size building. It was one that was beautiful to God, but it was not one and yet in which was massive, though it later would be. And the complex of the temple would have been much bigger with all the outbuildings and all the other things that went along with it. But the author goes on and he tells of, Exterior walls and windows for light and storerooms. And that this was a three-story complex. Yet one fascinating aspect of this temple was seen in verse 7. There it says, When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Every single stone, every piece of wood was measured precisely cut, pre-fit, taken apart, and then taken to the temple. Though not of the same holiness, this last year my family wanted to build some more deer blinds for where we hunt. And yet to get to the locations, you have to walk on stony paths where there's a lot of brush, and you can't carry a deer blind that far. So we, we being my dad, brother, and someone else, (laughs) built... Deer blinds, they constructed them at my dad's house, and then they took them apart. And they took one by one with a wheelbarrow, glad they did it, out to the site, and then they assembled the materials. Now, they had to do that out of necessity, necessity of getting the materials there. The temple had no difficult path. The necessity of the temple is that this is God's dwelling. This is a holy place. In our culture, we've kind of lost the distinction of sacred places. Everything has kind of become the same. And yet, we still kind of have an idea of this when you go to funeral homes. When you go to funerals, most people still know as you go in, you talk in hushed tones. This is a serious event. Someone has died, and we don't just come in and act like we're at a party. This is a serious place. And the place where God dwells is so serious, it is so holy, that they don't want tools like any other construction site. It must be set apart to the Lord. And we see that exact same thing going on in the next section because we see the need for holiness. The next point in verses 11 through 13, the foundation, the need for holiness. Look down again, 1 Kings chapter 6, and we'll read verses 11 to 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people, Israel. And so in the very midst of this building project, God comes and speaks to Solomon If Solomon does this, if he leads a holy life, then God will establish his promise that he gave to David. And as you read these verses through, at first it seems that verses 11 through 13 are a little out of place. Because if you look at verse 9, it tells you that they finished the building and they built the house. And then if you look at verse 14, it says, so Solomon built the house and finished it. So why in the world would you say that have these verses and then say it again well it's putting right in the middle right at the heart of the text an important reminder and that is that the temple is just going to be like any other building if they don't realize that they need to be holy to be in God's presence that they need to lead lives of holiness and this theme comes right at the heart of the passage but it's really a theme that runs throughout the Bible. You remember when God removed Adam and Eve from the garden, it was because of their sin. Their lack of holiness, their unholiness, caused them to be cast out from God's presence. When Moses sees the burning bush and God speaks to him, the first thing he says is, take off your shoes because you are on holy ground. Now, it wasn't that that ground was any more holy than any other ground. It's that God was there, and God's presence made it holy. And so Moses shouldn't have anything like filthy sandals touching it. When God did redeem Israel, when he brought Him out of Egypt, he said these words to them in Leviticus 26, words telling them promises, of blessing if they obey, and warnings of judgment if they disobeyed. Leviticus 26 says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. And then he says, all these wonderful things that will happen. And it gets highlighted in verse 11, 12. I will make my dwelling among you. So he's warning them and blessing them. Look, if you will be holy people, I will be in your midst. Just like we see here in 1 Kings chapter 6. Thus, God made Clear to them, when they entered the land, you must be holy. When he's building the temple, you must be holy. And then when they are actually kicked out of the land, he makes it clear it was because of their lack of holiness. Keith read for us earlier Jeremiah chapter 7. And there God spoke to them and says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, Israel was living rebelliously against God, but they kept acting as, it's okay, the temple's here, God's here, it doesn't matter what we do. They thought they had power merely because God's house was there. It would be like thinking, if I go buy a battery and plop it somewhere in my car, my car has power. Well, the battery has to be connected. And not only does that have to be connected, there can be no corrosions on the terminals. You know, when we are unholy in our lifestyle, we are corroded in our terminals, so to speak, with God. A temple without corresponding lives of holiness is as pointless as a battery with corroded power lines. And of course, the point is not that they could limit God by any way. He can act when and how he wants. Yet God has made clear he is with those who are holy. Thus Jeremiah 7 continued warning in verse 22. He says, For in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt, and did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I command you, that it may be well with you. Now, this isn't just an Old Testament thing, like, well, God used to relate to us as holy people, but now Christ has come, and that's all done away. Well, even in the New Testament, we see this. In Luke chapter 5, Simon Peter, the fisherman, has fished all night. And then Jesus teaches in the boat in the morning, and the disciples are cleaning their nets. And Jesus says, Simon, throw your nets back in the water. And Simon says, "Uh, Lord, we fished all night i.e., that's when you go fishing, and we caught nothing. And we just cleaned our nets. We don't want to get them dirty again. He says, but Lord, if you tell me to cast in the nets again, I'll do it. And Jesus says to do it. And they throw in their nets, and they expect uh, nothing, and the nets are taut, so taut that they can't pull them in, so tight they have to call fishing friends over to come, and they fill two boats so full they start to sink and Peter recognizes something this wasn't that Jesus had early sonar so he could test where the fish was this wasn't that he somehow knew spawning techniques of the fish and he knew they were in the morning and they just weren't aware of this the understanding of fish it was that only God could know this and so what does Peter do he whipped out a contract and said we're going to be the richest fishermen on Galilee just sign here once a year and we're done we're good No, he fell on his face, it says. And then he said these words, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He recognized if you are in God's presence, you must be holy. And he knew he wasn't, and so he fell on his face. He couldn't stand. He had to bow before God because he was unholy. R.C. Sproul writes, Sinful men are not comfortable in the presence of the holy. The cliche is that misery loves company. Another is that there is fellowship among thieves. But thieves do not seek the consoling presence of the fellowship of police officers. Sinful misery does not love the company of purity. We notice that Jesus did not lecture Peter about his sins. There was no rebuke, no word of judgment. All Jesus did was to show Peter how to catch fish. But when the holy is manifest, no words are needed to express it. This is not just in story, in command as well. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Strive for the holiness, and then it says, Without which no one will see the Lord. We cannot be in God's presence. We cannot see him if we are not. Holy. And this presses on us that we must be holy people. In our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, they must conform to God. And so we all have to ask: Are we seeking to lead holy lives? In what you joke about, in what you watch, in what you do with your friends, with how you handle your money, when. You have no one else who can see what you're doing. Does God factor in? Or do we, like Israel in Jeremiah's day, have little phrases? Oh, it's, we got the temple of Lord. Oh, well, yeah, I know that's wrong, but hey, I prayed. I prayed to Jesus. I accepted Jesus. I accepted Jesus. And we shrug off sin as it's no big deal because I did this thing. I did this thing. And like Jeremiah warned, you can't keep living in sin and not caring and going, but this is this. It's okay. It's okay. We must lead lives of holiness. And we're seeing here in 1 Kings 6, our lack of holiness not only affects us, it also affects others. You know, Often, Western readers of the Bible, we individualize things, and every time it says you, we make it personal. You, and we think me. And yet, Sometimes we need to realize the other way, because in verse 12, God is speaking to Moses, and the you is singular. God is telling Solomon, you Solomon, as the leader of Israel, you have an especially important role in leading a holy life. The Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness you fill that in wherever you are a leader. Your workplace's greatest need is your personal holiness. My family's greatest need is my personal holiness. Wherever you are, the greatest need for you is your personal holiness. This is not to deny that individual sin of people who aren't leaders affects others. Joshua 7, we see Achan, who wasn't a leader, and his sin affected all of Israel. But it is to realize The greater your influence, the greater your sin will have an effect. And yet some of you are saying, hold on, Pastor Jeremy. I have my notes from last week, and you said last week the foundation of the temple was God's promises. Now this week you're saying the foundation of the temple is our holiness. Come on. Can't change the point week to week. You Got to say the same thing. So is the foundation of the temple God's promises? Or is the foundation of the temple our holiness? Yes. To understand this, we really need to understand the way the Bible, the way God works with us. And one quick way to see that is to consider the Ten Commandments. You know, often when people think of the Ten Commandments, they begin with the first one. You shall have another gods before you. But we should really begin the Ten Commandments where they begin, and that is with And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he gives the Ten Commandments. In other words, we need to notice that the Ten Commandments begin with God reminding them of his prior kindness, his prior redeeming love that delivered them. And then he says, Remember how I saved you? Remember how I loved you? Now in response to... Go obey these commandments. He does not say, hey, Israel, hear these words. If you want me to redeem you out of ed- Egypt, here's ten commands. And when I'll come and check in every once in a while. And if you're doing well on these ten commandments, then we'll consider redeeming you from Israel. No, God first saves his people. And then he says, in response to that, lead holy lives. And the same thing goes throughout the bible god first tells us of his love his promises and those are the foundation that we build on so it is yes we must lead holy lives because god worked holiness in us as it says in philippians we work because he works in us and so we must see solomon must see god is saying that yes build on god and in response of what he's done continue to lead holy lives well why well because really all of this the whole temple is about having access into god's presence and we see that lastly the interior i'm not going to read all of these verses there many good things to see but i want to highlight some of the main things in verses 14 through 16 you read over and over of all this cedar being placed in the temple In verse 18, we read of beautiful gourds and flowers that are carved into the wood. And then in verses 19, he begins to zoom in, so to speak, and focus on the inner sanctuary, what was in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. In this room, we are told in verse 20, is a perfect cube. It's 20 by 20 by 20 in cubits or 30 by 30 by 30 in feet. And Well, everything outside of this room was wood and no stone could be seen. This room had wood that was completely covered in gold. And the main thing in this room was not the gold. It was in the center of the room, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, we're told about it in Exodus chapter 25. It was this box. It was about a little over three and a half feet long and a little bit more than two feet wide, and a little more than two feet tall. And like many things in the temple, it was made of wood and then covered with gold. And yet the ark's holiness was seen in a couple ways. One was no one could carry it except the Levites, and they even couldn't touch it. They had to slide poles through, and they had to wrap a veil around it so no one could see it, and they could carry it. Now, unlike Indiana Jones' depictions, the box was not empty or filled with sand, but the box held three things. It held the Ten Commandments. It held Aaron's staff. And it held a jar of manna. And these items were all specific. They all pointed to something. The manna was given after Israel complained to God that he wasn't caring for them. Aaron's staff was there. It had budded. Because it was a test when they were saying, Aaron shouldn't lead us, we should have other leaders. They were doubting God. The Ten Commandments remind them of how they should live. One commentary notes The pot of manna was an uncomfortable reminder that despite what God had provided for them, the Israelites had rejected God's provision. The staff reminded the Israelites that on more than one occasion they had rejected God's authority. The stone tablets in the ark were a reminder that the Israelites had rejected God's right standard of living. And so while they're all reminders of their sin, they're also reminders that they could trust God, because God will provide like He did with the manna. He will guide them like He did with Aaron. He will give them good laws to follow. And yet the most important part of the Ark of the Covenant was the covering, what went on top of it. If we all read our Bibles out loud, we'd it called various things. Some versions call it a cover. Others call it a mercy seat. Some call it an atonement cover. They're all trying to capture the root idea, and that is that the word used is this idea of covering. But it wasn't just like covering a table. It could be used to cover sin, as in the idea of an atonement. And this covering on the ark was more than just keeping the dust off the things inside. The cover functioned as a way to show that they had peace and friendship with God. Peace that came because of God's mercy by his covering of their sin. And overshadowing this Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim that we see also in this chapter. So let's put all this together. So here was this box that was in the place where once a year, the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice of atonement on it and what is going on is god metaphorically is looking down from heaven and when he looks down at the ark of the covenant what does he see he sees manna because they don't trust him he sees a staff because they reject his authority he sees commandments that they fail to obey and yet then what does god do on top of all that he puts a covering and he has put on that the blood of the Lamb. So when God looks down, again metaphorically, he no longer sees the reminders of Israel's sin. He sees the blood that is spread on top, covering their sin. And God is giving them and us a picture that, yes, we have sinned, but He, in His mercy, has made a way for it to be covered so that he no longer sees our sin. He sees the blood that has paid for that sin, the blood of the lamb that will ultimately be the blood of Jesus, the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And so anyone who trusts in Jesus, God does not look down and see your sin. He sees the blood of Jesus over your life. So that whatever you've done, whatever you've thought, He doesn't focus on that. He focuses on what Jesus did in your place. And that same symbolism is going on here in the ark. Because if you read through these verses, you keep reading over and over of these cherubim. Well, why these cherubim? Who are they? What are they doing? Well, we first read of these cherubim in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had sinned and they were kicked out of the garden, it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, God drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Look down in our chapter, chapter 6, verse 29, because there it says, Around the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim. Or look down at verse 32. It says, he carved the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim. Or in verse 35, it says that on them, on the doors, he carved cherubim. So everywhere you go in this temple, you keep seeing these cherubim. Well, it's not just everywhere around the temple. but look in verses 24 through 28. Because there we read of these cherubim who have wings that are 10 feet in span they are 15 feet tall I mean, these are huge pictures and they go from one end of the holy place to the other end the whole room is overshadowed with cherubim well why, why is god putting these things everywhere well remember their function they are at the garden of eden they are pictures that you cannot come in here while you have sinned You have been kicked out. And so God has these literally all over the place to remind them, you are not allowed in here except through the blood of the Lamb. The cherubim, they're not cute little chubby babies humming and strumming on harps. These are war angels that if you don't have the right passage, you cannot come in. Some of you all go to Shepherd Air Force Base, and to get onto Shepherd Air Force Base, you have to get past the guards, and to get in, you have to show them your ID that they scan. No ID, no access. God told the cherubim, "No one who is imperfect and unholy can have access into my presence." He also told them, though, everyone washed by the blood of the Lamb. Has been made holy. They are free to come in. And so, do you have the ID, the ID of Jesus stamped on your life that you receive by faith so that the cherubim don't, with a sword, keep you out, but say, Come in. You are welcome into this place. And so, here we're being given these beautiful pictures, not just so we can understand how to replicate this temple, though that is good in its own right but to show us who is God. What is he like? How can we come to know him? And this chapter ends by telling us that Solomon finished in the eighth year, sorry, the eleventh year in the eighth month, so it took seven years, and this will be the highlight of his reign. This temple will eventually, though, be destroyed. It will be rebuilt, though not as big, under Ezra and Nehemiah. Then it will be greatly expanded by Herod, Then it will be destroyed again in 70 A.D. And yet the most important thing about the temple is not what it was, but what it signified. It signified that God is Emmanuel. He is with us. Thus, when Jesus comes, what does he do early on in his ministry? He cleanses the temple. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And the Jews then say, well, what are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? And yet Jesus was talking about his body, about him being the temple. And so for us today, to be in God's presence, you don't need to go to a temple. You don't need to go to any building. You don't need to get in any stance. You don't need to get in any mental state. You need to come to Jesus. He is God's temple. He gives you access to God the Father. And that's why when we read earlier, Revelation says, in the new heavens and new earth there'll be no temple, for the Lamb will be there. And He gives access to all. He is the temple. And so this morning, as you've heard some construction plans, I hope you've seen much more than width, length, height, and products used to build it. I hope you've come to see and more than that that you would trust that to know God to be known by God I need to be holy that I can't do that on my own one's blood must be shed and that one was Jesus and so if I trust in him God will bring me into his presence forever let's pray oh Lord how gracious you are You would have been completely just and fair to only look at our sin. And yet you made a way that that sin might be covered. And Lord, from Genesis to Revelation, you've given us pictures time and again that we might see your amazing love and grace, the love that sent your son to die, that we might be forgiven, that we might be restored to you and one day live with you forever. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.